As we look at Matthew chapter 8, we're going to go down to verse 28. We've talked about the different sections here that we've been going through. We saw the four healings that we talked about. We saw the three discipleship kind of scenarios that we saw. We talked about that last time. We saw the disciples in the storm. You know, I think it's very interesting and very... Something that should definitely cause us to stop and think. You've probably read through the book of Matthew before. I hope you have. If you hadn't, well, we need to maybe work on that a little bit. But you've probably read the book of Matthew before. And I think it's important for us to stop and look at the sequence of events, why they're written the way they are, the context they're written in, how they kind of tie together in ways that were intended and less looking at them as individualized stories that we try to draw different applications on. So we look at this as we're going into this next section. The next section we talk about is when Jesus goes to Gennesaret, and he goes there to preach, Okay, and he's met by a man who's possessed by a demon. Matthew says two men. Um, Mark, where we're going to be kind of camping out this morning, just really focuses on one. So maybe there was two men. Jesus only healed one. Maybe Jesus healed both. Who, who knows? We're going to focus, though, on the story and what it's usually referred to as the wild Gadarene. Okay? Now, the name Gadarene, when we use that, um, the, the area was Gergesene, okay, or Gergesen. And so there's probably a mistranslation, misnaming. Gadarene is not really an area there. Um, so this is the eastern coast of the Sea of Galilee. So if you remember, as we've been going through on Acts on Wednesday night, or as we have been looking at the maps when we've been talking about uh, Genesis, and you remember, if you look at the map, um, that's why I wish I had my, my TV or something up here. If you had the map of Jerusalem and you had the map of Israel, you would have Jerusalem down towards the middle portion. You'd have the Dead Sea there. And then as you went up north into the northern areas of what would be called Samaria and that area, you have another little sea called the Sea of Galilee. Okay, And it's on the what would be the uh, western side. Okay. Of the Sea of Galilee, this way, all right? The western side of the Sea of Galilee, you have Nazareth and you have some other areas up there. That is where Jesus was born, that's where he, or where, where he lived, wasn't born there, that's where he lived, that's where he grew up. That's where he started his ministry, he left out of Nazareth, he started going around that western coast of the Sea of Galilee, and he started picking up Peter and Paul, and I mean uh, Peter and James and all of them, Okay. Well, after we've had this discourse, you know, it says he got in a boat and they went to the other side. All right, that's where we have the sea, uh, the storm on the sea. And we have that scenario that we talked about last week. So now they've reached the other side. They've gotten to the eastern coast and the area of Gergesene, um, the area that's called the Decapolis, which is 10 uh, kind of areas over there on that eastern co coast. Okay, so this is what we're going to read from Matthew chapter 8 and then... We're not even going to look at Matthew 8. We're going to jump over to Mark chapter 5, okay? Because that's just how we roll. So Matthew chapter 8, verse 28, it says, And when he was come to the other side into the country of the Gergesene, they met him, or there met him two possessed with devils, coming out of the tombs, exceeding fierce, so that no man might pass by that way. And behold, they cried out, saying, 
What have we to do with thee, Jesus, thou son of the God? Art thou come hither to torment us before the time? And there was a good way off from them a herd of many swine feeding. So the devils besought him, saying, If thou cast us out, suffer us to go away into the herd of swine. And he said unto them, Go. And when they were come out, they went into the herd of swine, and behold, the whole herd of swine ran violently down a steep place into the sea and perished in the waters. And they that kept them fled and went their ways into the city and told everything and what was befallen to uh, to the possessed of the devils. And behold, the whole city came out to meet Jesus. And when they saw him, they besought him that he would depart out of their coasts. Now, we're all very familiar with this story. I want you to flip over, if you can, to Mark chapter 5. This, I'm, I'm going to say, and I know I've said it multiple times, but this is probably one of my favorite stories. Okay? And the reason is, is because there is extremely deep and wide-reaching implications out of this story. All right? You know, a lot of people focus on this story and they like this story or they're, in, you know, whatever, intrigued by this story. Because in Mark chapter 5, it talks about the Legion, okay? I think there's actually some horror movies that have that in there. They love this idea. This is the first time where a demon is like named and it's intriguing because it says Legion and all this stuff. But I want us to make sure we're intrigued by the right person in this story, okay? What's intriguing about this story is number one, it continues with the theme that we are seeing out of all of Mark chapter, I mean of Matthew chapter eight, and all of basically the first things that Jesus did, and that is the faith and the power of Jesus. Okay, you have examples of faith, and then you have the examples of the power of Jesus. You have faith found in the centurion servant, um, or in the centurion, the healing of the centurion servant. Okay. And you have the power of Jesus to heal. You have the faith of the leper and the power of Jesus to heal. You have the faith or the faithlessness, I guess you could say, of the disciples in the sea. Okay? And then you have Jesus' power in calming the storms. Okay? So you have this ongoing theme of faith and the power of Jesus. And here we're going to continue to see this play out. So in Mark chapter 5, we're going to read the first five verses, if y'all can read along with me. And they came over unto the other side of the sea into the country of the Gadarenes. And again, we said that should be a different name there. And when he was come out of the ship, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit, who had his dwelling among the tombs, and no man could bind him, no, not with chains." Because that he had been often bound with fetters and chains, and the chains had been plucked asunder by him, and the fetters broken in pieces. Neither could any man tame him. And always, night and day, he was in the mountains and in the tombs, crying and cutting himself with stones. Now this gives a little bit more of a personal side to this man and his condition. Okay? Matthew's account is good, but it kind of leaves out some of these details. You get the gist of it, but you don't get these kind of in-depth, beautiful details that we see in Mark's account. In Mark's account, you get the description of a man who is possessed by a demon, living out in the tombs or in the graveyard, 
who is so kind of out of his mind and kind of imbued with this weird physical strength thing that even though people have tried to wrap him up and contain him before, he can just bust chains off, he can break handcuffs off, and he's just, he's a wild man, okay? But you also need to catch there that as he's describing his kind of physical irrationality, you also see this very sad picture that we need to grab, and that is that every day and every night he is out in the mountains, out in the tombs, crying, cutting himself with stones. So we want to make sure that we grab that. And something that we want to make sure we're grabbing out of all of this is that it is extremely important because we have a tendency sometimes to want to look at situations like this in our lives, but also especially here with like a 10,000 feet elevation view. We want to look at this man and we look at that that distant case that happened 2,000 years ago of that man as a nice little story about something that Jesus did and how amazing it is and what happened. But I want to make sure that we take a moment to think about this and to put ourselves in the man's shoes. To stop and think about the condition that he is in. To stop and kind of try and grab what kind of physical, emotional, and spiritual battles this man is going through. Because it's important for us to do that. It's important for us to do that At every point in our life, we have a tendency a lot of times, and that's from whatever, and we've been talking about this because, you know, we've been really getting back to, am I a Republican or am I a Christian? Am I a Democrat or am I a Christian? Am I a whatever or am I a Christian? Am Am I following Jesus Christ or do I say I believe in Jesus Christ, but I'm aligning with something that's outside of Jesus Christ? We've been trying to get back to say it's not about the political that identifies you as a Christian. It's whether you follow Jesus that identifies you as a Christian. So whereas somebody else may say it's okay to just bomb and wholesale murder people because, hey, that's just in national interest. We say, well, actually, we're called to love our enemies. So how do we justify that? Okay, We're called to love our neighbors. So all these things that we've been trying to kind of refocus on... Here is another one of those examples. We need to make sure that as we're viewing other people who are going through issues, that we're viewing them from the view of Jesus and not my socioeconomical status. Okay, Not from where my position is. Not from where, where I grew up. But that we're looking at people with what they're suffering from and not looking at them and saying, oh, well, I mean, they got themselves into this situation. They should be able to get themselves out. Well, if they just made better, uh, better choices... Well, if they were just a little bit more, if they were just as studious, if they were just as hardworking, if they were just as whatever, if they were just like me, well, then they wouldn't be in this situation. Instead of realizing, number one, the reason you're in the situation, if you're in a good one, you know, the reason you're in your situation is because God is just amazingly gracious to you, okay? It ain't because of how good looking you are, how studious you are, how hardworking you are, how whatever you are. It's solely by the grace of God, Okay? So we got to get to that realization first, okay? And then understand that there's people struggling with some very big issues who don't need some kind of condemning, um, demeaning approach, but rather a, what would I do if I was in their position? So you see this man. 
He doesn't necessarily look like someone we would expect to come running into the church. He's not our picture of what a nice southern, you know, well-bred, Sunday-best church member would look like, right? Okay? And we have to be a little bit honest and a little bit willing to realize that we do have certain prejudices in that way. We have people who we would look at and go, hmm, I don't know. I mean, they got a few too many tattoos. They got a few too many piercings. They act a few little. I mean, they're just not like we would think. We think nice, clean dress, southernness with maybe a big old hat. We don't do the hats, I guess, anymore. But used to be. That's what we did. All right. There's just this picture of what a good church-going person is supposed to look like. So this person would definitely break that mold. But I want us to catch some things about him. Number one, where is he living on a daily basis? He's living out amongst the tombs and in the mountains. He is a social outcast. Okay, and That's really important for us to grab. Because usually what we expect is not social outcasts to come into the church. We expect the people who are, you know, they're cleaned up. They look good. They got good jobs. They're nice, you know, whatever kind of status they're at. This man is a social outcast. He's living among the tombs. He has a home among the dead rather than the living. Okay. He's been kicked out of society. No one wants to be around him. And it's probably the case that the demon has actually driven him out into this place, not just the social constructs, but the demon is actually driving him out because he wants to keep him pretty isolated. You kind of follow with me on that? Wants to keep him isolated because... the And that's very much in the pattern of like addiction and things like that. Let's isolate you. Let me try to get you outside of any kind of support and social group you can have because if I can isolate you, I can then play all your faults on replay in your brain and keep you right where I want you. So that same kind of pattern of addiction and possession, they manifest the same in today's world. A divide and conquer mentality. If I can get you out of your support group, I can conquer you. If I can divide you out and make you feel isolated enough and not accepted enough, then you will have no desire to change your status. And that's very much what happens today. Make them feel alone. Keep them away from the beneficial contact. And that way you can drive them deeper and deeper into their addiction. They will turn to their addiction. They'll turn to their possession more than turning to the relief or the, uh, the, the salvation you can have in the people that are around you. I mean, that's very much, that's, that's typical psychology stuff. They'll tell you to get you in a nice, good social support group. And if you look at statistics, it's the people who are addicted to drugs who go through rehab and detox and get out and then have a long-term support group that stay clean. Okay? It's the people who don't and start getting back into that isolation and get isolated from their support group. Those are the ones who fall back into their addiction. So you kind of see this playing out with this man. He's out of town. He's kicked out. He's out in the out in the boonies, okay? You also see that he is possessing a supernatural strength that he's able to break these chains and these handcuffs and all this. And even though, you know, he can break this stuff, you know, we look at things like handcuffs and chains. Those are physical symbols of slavery, control. You know, that's how we control suspects when we want to take them to jail. Um, if you go back to slave trade days, I mean, the chains were the symbol of slavery. Okay? So even though he is breaking free from this, and this is, again, one of those little lies that the, that the devil wants to tell you. Is that the addiction, the oppression, the possession, whatever it is that you are involved with, okay, 
is actually something that is giving you freedom. So here, when you see him able to break these chains off and no man can tame me, okay, you get this picture of, oh, well, he must be free. He can't be controlled by any of man's constructs. And this, again, this goes very much with addiction and stuff that we have today. It goes very much, again, just with our own prideful, selfish attitudes, too. I am not going to be beholden to any man. I'm not going to be constrained by anyone. I am the captain of my own destiny. No one can tell me what to do. Okay. And here is they're trying to control this man because he's crazy, Okay, in that sense. As they're trying to control this man, what this possession, this demon possession is doing for him is giving him a strength so he can break off all that stuff. You don't need to be controlled by any man. We're not going to let you. Let's break those chains. Let's free you from all this. But find your strength in this possession or this addiction. That's where you're finding the strength. And what, they, what, what you kind of fail to realize and what the person who's in the situation fails to realize is that that is, that addiction, that possession, whatever it is, that is a lie that the devil is telling them that you're actually freer when you're addicted to this thing, okay? You're actually in freedom, you know, you don't have to worry about all that the world is trying to do to you and all of these silly things that men are trying to contain you with, you don't have to worry about that, I'm going to set you free from all that. The, the kind of contrary to that is you're just going to be enslaved to this addiction or this possession the rest of your life. So it's not freedom. You're actually, in reality, sinking deeper and deeper into a slavery and into a bondage. So you see this man getting kind of deeper and deeper and deeper into this situation. Lastly, in, you see that his possession, which is, again, very... Uh, it, it, as I was reading through this, it just very much hit me how much this is tying back into same things that we see today. With addiction, possession, um, isolation, loneliness, depression, anxiety. I mean, all this stuff is just, it's the same stuff over and over again. But you see that this possession eventually will turn him on himself. You see him crying and cutting himself. All right? You know, cutting is a modern-day emotional problem. That's a real emotional issue that goes on today. And you know what? It ties back in a lot with isolation, feelings of loneliness, feelings like you don't belong, feeling like you're a social outcast, that people don't accept you, that you are not in the same kind of mold and look in the same way that they want you to look. So you're outside, you're isolated, and on repeat, you're having someone tell you you're not worth it, your life is worthless, you don't mean anything, you don't look as pretty as they do, you don't have the same job as they do, you're not as successful as they are, you're not as cool as they are, you don't say the same things that they do, you're not in with the in crowd, you're on the outside. And so that possession, that addiction, that whatever, starts then turning eventually on the person. It turns into a self-loathing, turns into a self-abuse. Okay, So it's these feelings of inadequacy that turn into full-blown and ultimately destructive behaviors towards the individual. So you see him out here crying. Well, I mean, again, it's like, you know, why would you do that? Why is this person doing that? And number two, why is Mark recording that? Why would he record these things about this possessed man? Why would he record that he was crying and cutting himself out in the tombstones and in the mountains that he's in? 
you always have to question why things were included the way they were. And I think that they were included to give us a very desperate and depressing mental issue that this guy is going through and to give us a hopefully compassionate view of his life. And I look at him and go, he's just crazy, you know. He's just nuts. I mean, good gracious, yeah, let him stay out there because we don't want him around town. He may go nuts. He may affect us in a way that would kind of mess up our nice, clean, neat little life that we have. He doesn't look like us. He doesn't act like us. And he, you know, who knows what he's going to do? We can't control him. We can't bind him. We've tried locking him up. He gets out. So let's just kick him out. Let him stay out there and let him do his thing. But instead, Jesus and the Holy Spirit are kind of inviting us into his life to say, no, look at this man. He is a man. He is an image bearer of God. And he is here in this oppressed slavery condition that is weighing on him to the point that he is committing self-abuse. These are real things. And, you know, there's a lot of times that they don't get into emotional or uh, psychological issues. You know, we try to, you know, sometimes you get in this kind of, again, this 10,000 feet elevation view of the gospel. And it's, it's very, you know, off of these very real subjects. Or we're going to talk about the big subjects that everybody wants to talk about. You know, let's talk about homosexuality and let's talk about adultery and let's talk about pornography. But let's kind of, like, let's, let's not get really into the deep things of like depression and bulimia and anemia and those kind of things that are serious mental slavery, abuse issues, okay? Let's just kind of avoid that. But this is the reality. This is what this man's going through. He's not struggling with adultery. He's struggling with a possession that's affecting him in a mental capacity. And I'm just going to go ahead and throw it out there that I think this stuff goes on today, okay? There's a lot of things that we try to zoloft out of existence that are true demon issues, okay? And look, I'm in medicine. I'm not, a, I'm not like, <laughs> throw all your antidepressants away. They're not, no, come on. We're not going that far. But I'm saying there are some times where we're fighting the warfare with the wrong weapons. So here, the point that we need to remember with this guy is that we need to make sure that we see people like Jesus sees people. He didn't walk by this guy when he jumps at him out, out of the boat and go, you know, do, do a little Heisman and, and keep him at an arm's distance. Stay away from me. You're a little too crazy for me. Get yourself a little uncrazy and then come back. I'll be happy to preach to you or help you or minister you or whatever it may be. Jesus see the, sees this man, loves them, seeks to help them, avoids being distracted by the problem, okay, and being repulsed by the problem. You know, that's a lot of our issue is that we have a problem of being distracted and repulsed by the issue instead of seeing the person as a man or a woman who is an image bearer of God. I'm going to be like, oh, their, their problem is just a little bit too out of, out of whack for me, okay? Their problem is just a little too distracting. They're just not the picture of that nice, I want to evangelize someone who's a cleaned up, white bread, middle class, nice person, that's who I want to evangelize. I want to be able to have coffee with them and we can open up the Bible and we'll, sh we'll say law that all day and it'll just be great. But Jesus here is always showing us pictures of broken down, busted up people that he is more than willing to save. You go back and look at the leper again. Social outcast on a completely different scale. Physical ailment, physical issue, 
outcast from society, begs his mercy, through faith knows that he can do it, and Jesus says, absolutely, I will. Boom, you're healed. So we've got to make sure that we are more inclined as the light and the salt of this world and representatives of Jesus Christ to enter into broken situations than we are to just expect people to get themselves out of broken situations and then come see me, okay? When you get all cleaned up, looking good again, you know, you got all your craziness under control and all your brokenness is fixed. When you got all that figured out on your own by yourself, okay, then you can come. I'll be happy to receive you and we'll hold hands and we'll, you know, pray together. That's just not the case here. So we should want to enter into the brokenness and seek to save those who are lost. So it goes forward and it says, But when he saw Jesus afar off, he ran and worshipped him and cried with a loud voice and said, What have I to do with thee, Jesus, thou son of the most high God? I adjure thee by God that thou torment me not. For he said unto him, that's Jesus said unto him, Come out of the man, thou unclean spirit. And when he asked him, What is thy name? Jesus asked him, What is thy name? Speaking to the demon. And he answered, the demon answered, saying, My name is Legion, for we are many. Again, this is one of those scenes in the Bible that everybody's like, Ooh, ooh, how interesting. Let's do some exorcism of Emily Rose stuff here, okay? But there's a bunch of really interesting things that happen here. And that's why, again, I love Mark's account. This is something that's amazing that's going on. You have this demon that it says when he saw Jesus, he ran up and worshipped him. And you say, oh, well, we're not sure if that's the demon or if that's the man. Well, I can tell you it's the demon because he uses the same pronouns over and over and over again. And Jesus only talks to the demon. He doesn't talk to the man. So you get the picture. No, it was the demon. It was the demon that came up and bowed before Jesus because he knew that you were the son of the most high God. That word they're worshiping because people are going to go, well, I don't know, I don't know. Are we talking about like a Sunday morning thing? I mean, are we talking about like a raise our hand worship or what are we talking about there? Well, the Greek is proskynason, which is basically the Greek word. The, the root of it is proskyneo, which is the one that means I go down on my knees to do obeisance to, okay, to bow to and to worship. I mean, that's what the word is. This same word is used back at the beginning of Matthew chapter 8 when they're talking about the leper. The leper ran to Jesus and worshipped him. He bowed down on his knees and recognized that he had the power to heal him if he just would, if it was according to his will. So here we have this amazing thing and something that I've said before. When you look at this section of scripture and then you look also at James chapter 2, you get an interesting picture. okay? And something that should be both kind of condemning on one end, but also calls us to reflect and think about it. And that is this. How, how condemning should it be to us that the demons sometimes have more of a view of the sovereignty of God than we do? Than professing Christians and believers in Jesus Christ how upsetting should it be to us that the pictures we get from the Bible are that the demons never question it. The demons never question their place in the created realm. 
They never go, oh, well, you're Jesus. Well, I'm not sure. Are you Jesus? I don't, I'm not really sure if you're Jesus or not. I mean, should I bow to you? I know that I'm supposed to. If you really are, then I will, but I'm not sure. You don't see that. They recognize it without him ever saying a word. And when they see him, they run up and realize their place, which is, I know that I am not um, over you or have power over you, and I lease anything that I have from you. So when they see Jesus, they bow down. When you look over at James chapter 2 and verse 19, when they talk about faith, and he's kind of reiterating that faith is always accompanied with works in that situation, that faith without works is dead, okay? So when he's going through that, he says, oh, well, you say that you believe. Well, that's good. Thou believest that there is one God. You do good. You do well. The devils also believe, and they tremble. So he's giving an example in James chapter 2 of the quote-unquote faith, okay, and the works that back up it from the demons. Now, they don't have faith like we're talking about with us that is given by the Holy Spirit. But they have faith in the sense that they understand and know who God is. And because they understand and know and believe 110% who God is, they know what their response should be. And they tremble at the sight of God. We sometimes want to have a debate at the sight of God. We sometimes want to kind of, kind of go and try to see if we can't argue at the sight of God. We want to resist the sight of God. Here you see this demon, and when he sees Jesus, he goes right down on his face and says, I'm begging you, don't cast me out and destroy me before my time. And that's the other thing. If you look at the Matthew verse when we were looking at when he's talking about, have you come to torment us before our time? They have an understanding of soteriology and eschatology that sometimes we don't even grab. They're sitting there going, I know I have a time. I know my time is limited here. I know that there is coming a day when you are going to wrap me up, as it says in Revelation, and you're going to cast me into the lake of fire, and I'm going to be done. Okay? So here, they are, they are sometimes, in these situations, you look at me like, man, they are more theologically on key than we are. There's times that, especially when it comes to like submitting to the sovereign rule of Jesus Christ, which, again, and I, and I was probably one of these people, but, you know, it, it gets into this, this question in my mind. If you believe in Jesus Christ, then why have you not been baptized? Why have you not gone and joined with him and followed him in discipleship? Jesus said to do that. If we believe in Jesus and recognize him as Lord, then we do what he says to do. That's what we've been talking about with this, with honor your, with um, love your neighbor and love your enemies. We go, well, why do we do that? Is it fitting with our social structure? Is it fitting with what we should be? No, it's not convenient. It's not uh, always nice. It's not a pretty picture. But why do we do it? Because Jesus, our sovereign Lord, said that's what you do. It's not a question of if, how, or when. It's not a question of when it's convenient. It's not a question of when it works out best for me, when it's the best situation, or more importantly, when I can get the most gratitude for it. That's not the question. It's not when, how, or if. It is absolutely, yes, I will, because I believe that you are Lord and Master over all. Here, the devils had no question of it. They didn't, they didn't come up and him and haul around the issue or anything. They got down on their knees before Jesus and begged him not to destroy them because they recognized he is Lord 100% and I have no authority. 
I can only do what He allows or tells me to do. So it's just something that we should always reflect on and go, hmm, you know, where am I standing at? Am I, do I exercise less, quote-unquote, faith than these demons? Do I deny by my actions the sovereignty that Jesus has over me by my actions when I'm looking at examples of demons who obviously they're, they're pretty bought into this idea? But the demon recognized immediately who Jesus was, recognized what his authority was, recognized what his power was. And there was no question in this demon's mind, if demons have minds, I'm not sure. So why does it take so long for us? Why are we waiting? Why do we, and I, and, and I know there's probably a lot of this that goes back to what we have kind of done in co-opting the, you know, baptism you know, for so long and for whatever reason, we kind of we, we kind of grabbed that in and it was like, oh, baptism is you joining the local body. No, baptism is obedience to Jesus Christ, okay, in or outside of a local body. There were no local bodies in a lot of cases where these men were baptized and these women were baptized. So, no, baptism does not mean you're joining a local body, okay? Joining a local body is I profess and I want to be with you folks, okay? Uh, that's what joining the body is, and that is loving them, sticking with them, going to church with them, doing mission stuff in the community with them. That's what joining the local body is. Baptism is a sacrament of Jesus Christ that he said, do it, okay? If you believe in me, if you have heard my gospel and believe my gospel, you get baptized because that's what I said to do. Anywhere, any place, anytime, because you are following what I told you to do. So I kind of get sometimes it becomes uh, because of our traditions and stuff. It's kind of been co-opted that way. And people are like, well, I don't want to join this church. I don't want to join that church. And I don't know which way. Okay, well, we'll push all that to the side. If that's why you're holding up, let's go get in the water because you're following Jesus. You're joining Jesus. You're not joining a church somewhere. Okay. So on the way, though, as he's going through this, when we get to this kind of idea about this demon, what's interesting is the legion thing, okay? Let's keep in mind that a Roman legion, which is what you would kind of take off of what he's doing here, is 6,000 men, okay? Now, who knows if he was giving an exact number, if he says legion because he meant we were 6,000 and we had 6,000 demons in us, or he just meant legion because, as he said, we are many, Okay, he was giving an idea that there wasn't just one, it wasn't just one issue here, okay? What's important for us to grab from that is, is guess what, okay? You and I probably have more than one issue, right? I'm just going to throw that out there. I know all of y'all are like, now, now it's bombshell time and we're all surprised and shocked. Oh, I just thought I had that one I got it under control. You know what's funny to me is that we keep finding over and over again that you're just not as well put together as we all think we are, right? Oh, well, if I could just get over this issue with cussing, then I would just be a much better person. Well, then you turn around and there's lying right behind it or there's lust or whatever it may be that follows in suit, okay? That's why we kind of describe sanctification as a progressive process, that it's not something that's one and done. It's not one day you wake up and you go, oh, yes, I'm sanctified. All my sins are gone away, and I am never going to commit anything evil ever again. Instead, you see this nice little roller coaster seesaw course throughout our entire life as God continually works in us and is pulling us and is driving us away from things. And as life and conditions change and as we start falling into other issues, God is there to kind of guide his sheep out of that pitfall as well. But there's more than one demon that's affecting this man. And there is obviously more than one demon that affects us on a daily basis. 
So you want to grab the fact that there's this large number of demons here because that also gives kind of the weight to the miracle of what Jesus does. Now you would say, well, casting out one demon is pretty spectacular. And I'd agree with you, okay? I had never, you know, like, you know, shalom someone out of, you know, demon possession, okay? So, I mean, here, him doing one would still be pretty much, I mean, we're, we're over where there's no comparison. But the fact that you see this man's condition, okay, how afflicted he is, and then you see how many demons are afflicting him, not only does it give this high weight to the power of Jesus Christ that not even a legion of demons are able to withstand him, but the other side of it too, get back to putting ourselves in this man's shoes. Get back to compassionately viewing his condition and going, my goodness, my heart breaks for this guy who is so grievously tormented. We need to make sure that we're always keeping a heart like Jesus. To look at people and not look at the problems and not be distracted by their issues and go, well, it's just you're too messed up. In this guy's case, you got 6,000 demons. I don't even know how to, where do I start, okay? Not, not getting distracted by that, but rather looking at, oh my goodness, look at where you're at. Look at what you have affecting you. Look at the intense slavery you were in bondage to and I want to see you free. And we know there's only one man who can do that. So these demons sought him, sought Jesus, that sought him much, okay? So that would be a nice little descriptor there. How much did he want? Much, much. Give me, don't, don't do this to me. Besought him a lot that he would not send them away out of the country. Now there was, um, there was there nigh unto the mountains a great herd of swine feeding, that would be pigs, and all the devils besought him saying, send us into the swine that we may enter into them. And forthwith Jesus gave them leave. And the unclean spirits went out and entered into the swine. And the herd ran violently down a steep place into the sea. They were about 2,000 and were choked in the sea. Now, a couple of things that we've got to grab out of that. Number one, you see in this picture here the exact same thing you see in Job as we have been going back to that. They were asking, begging, pleading, groveling for Jesus, okay, for his permission Jesus allowed them not to be just completely destroyed, but send them into the swine. But they had to ask his permission. It wasn't like they had the free will to decide that. They didn't say, hey, Jesus, we're not, hey, just leave it. We're going to bounce over here. We're going to go. And Jesus had to give them leave to be able to do that. Again, we emphasize the sovereignty of God. There is nothing outside of his control. God is sovereign. That's what that means. There are no, as another a, a fame, another preacher that, you know, I love how he said this and I have grabbed hold of it and kept it every, ever since. There is no such thing as a rogue molecule in the entire universe. There is no molecule out of place, no matter that's doing its own thing outside of God's command or will or, or uh, permission or allowance of that. He is in control of it all. That's why the stars keep spinning. That's why things keep burning. That's why suns keep setting and rising because God is in control of it. And so even when it comes down to his created order in this case, even when it comes down to these devils, they are here by his permission. 
Now, people want to go, well, why? Well, why would he let them? I don't know. You know, all this stuff that people were going to run down the tra- rabbit trails. And just as the demons here understood, there was coming a time, okay? For whatever reasons, it's in God's almighty power and will and desire. He is allowing this to continue. I can't give you a good answer for it. He didn't give Job a good answer. Job asked the question, well, why, God? Why, God? Why, God? Why? Why am I who am so righteous? Uh, Why am I encountering and going through all these problems? And God's answer to Job was not, well, because I've got this grand purpose for it, because I'm trying to weed out some pride in you, Job, and I'm trying to get you a little bit more. And he just says, because I'm God, and that's it. Don't ask questions. I didn't need your input, and you didn't, I mean, why are you at, were you there when I made the world? No. Were you there when I did X, Y, Z? No. It's not your place. Quit asking the question. Get back to serving me like you are to serve me. I created you. I make the rules. I do what I want to do according to my will and according to my good pleasure. And you are to serve and faithfully submit to me. That's it. There's no, I don't have to explain myself in this. So here even why, even when people would go, well, why is he doing that? Why, is he, why didn't he just, you know, poof, you know, blow him up or do, whatever? Well, because this is what he wanted to do. So he gave them leave. They entered the swine. They went down to the sea, and they were choked. So they, the pigs ended up dying. There was 2,000 pigs. Now, that's a bad day for a pig herder. Um, you just got to keep that in mind. Uh, 2,000 pigs being killed. Now, there was probably, if you're going to kind of go with the customs of the time, either you had like a son that was raising these kids for a daddy, or else you had like a hired servant keeping watch over these pigs for somebody else, a master. And you're out there tending to these pigs, minding your own business, trying to keep them out of trouble. And then all of a sudden, they go nuts, run down into a sea, and 2,000 pigs are killed. Okay? You got to imagine that that poor little guy watching those pigs is going, "Uh uh-oh, this doesn't look good. This is going to be a problem, all right? And I'm sure you were all more than willing to point the finger at Jesus at that point, going, I don't, it was that guy. It wasn't me. Wasn't me. I was not there. I was watching them, and all of a sudden, they ran down the hill, and they, I, I had nothing to do with it, okay? I wasn't playing on my iPhone. I wasn't, like, texting while driving. It wasn't my fault, okay? So it's interesting, though. And he gives it to... Now, this is another thing that you got to catch. These are probably, more than likely, almost assuredly, these are Gentile people, okay? Because really, in the first century here, you didn't have Jews raising pigs, okay? They didn't do that. They didn't raise pigs, right? Because they didn't need pigs. They didn't eat pigs. They didn't use anything from pigs. They're unclean animals. So they weren't raising pigs. So you don't have a bunch of Jews out here raising these pigs. You're more than likely dealing with Gentiles. And you say, well, why is that important? Because this is kind of the diving board, the launching board for Jesus' ministry into the Gentile people. Now, he will tell his disciples and he'll tell his apostles in the first kind of three years there when he's here on this world, he'll say, do not go into the land of the Gentiles. Do not go into X, Y, Z. Only go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. He said, I want you to go to the Israelites and I want you to preach the gospel to them. I want you to preach to the ones who have been lost over these many, many, many generations. But here Jesus has gone across the ship and he's over here preaching in the area of Gennesaret, which is where a most more than likely is a Gentile land. You also have some other very interesting Gentile kind of 
gospel healing movements going on. You have him heal the centurion's servant, okay? You also have him in a, and and you could probably, I didn't do this chronologically, but I mean, you know, you go over to the woman at the well and Jesus is healing the woman at the well. She's a Samaritan. They were not necessarily purely Gentiles, but they were not Jews, okay? So you have this kind of continued picture of Jesus going to his people wherever they are, amongst whoever they are. And what's important for us to grab that we've said multiple times as this is this. Do not erect barriers where they don't exist. Do not erect artificial barriers that are preventing you and me from going to people that God would go to. Here you have it with the Gentiles. And originally, until really you see, really kind of come into play in Acts with Peter and Paul you know, that was a no-no thing. They weren't going to the Gentiles. When Jesus is talking to the woman, the well, the apostles come up to him and are like, you need to get away from that woman. She's a Samaritan, okay? Come over here. We're not going to associate with her. But Jesus is continuing in his habit of breaking down these walls that men through their traditions and their religious whatever have erected. Jesus didn't put those up. Jesus instead is breaking them down going into them. He could have very easily gone up to that man who was the, the, the man from Gennesareth who's here, who's here possessed by these demons and go, Brother, you're not from my hood. You're not from my neighborhood. Right? You ain't my people. I don't deal with you. I'm just here for the Jews. I'm not here to help you. Back off. Go back where you came from. But he didn't do that. More than willing to see this man in his affliction and go, absolutely, I'll take that weight off of you. I'll take that burden away. The area that's here, this is the area of what is called the capitalist, which if you peel up, you know, flip to the back of your Bibles, look at a, a map of A.D., you know, time of, um, of Israel. And what you'll see there is you'll see the Sea of Galilee and then you'll see over to the eastern coast there, you'll see Gennesaret. And you'll also see some areas over here, and it's called Decapolis. And that was ten cities, basically, is what it is. And it was a ten-cityed area over there that was kind of a, you know, more of a Gentile land, okay, on the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee. So that's where they're at, more of Gentile people. He is about to set the stage for something really big that's going to start in this Gentile land. So it's important for us to make sure that we're not erecting any kind of denominational, socioeconomical racial barriers that are preventing us to simply preach the gospel to people who need it. Lastly here as he goes on, he says, and they that fed the swine fled. Exactly. Okay. I'm out of here. <laughs> Get me back to my master so I can be the first one to tell him, brother, I didn't have anything to do with it. And told it in the city and in the country what had happened. And they went out to see what it was that was done. And they come to Jesus and see him that was possessed with the devil and had the legion sitting and clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. And they that saw it told them how it befell to him that was possessed with the devil and also concerning the swine. <laughs> Let me just make sure I mention to you that yes, there's this amazing thing that's happened over here, but this is what happened with the pigs. Okay, so you understand that. This is how 2,000 pigs can drown in the Sea of Galilee, okay? But what's, and they, the people then, began to pray him, Jesus, to depart out of their coasts. Now, what I want us to get out of this part is that 
the restoration that Jesus accomplishes in this man is complete. Okay? It was 100%. They even put clothes on him. Who knows where they came from? you got to imagine. Maybe there were some of the apostles or some of the disciples or something. But this man is clothed. He hadn't been before. Okay? This man is sitting. He wasn't before. And this man is in his right mind. And as we know, he was not before. So when Jesus healed this man and delivered him from his addiction, possession issue that he had, it was complete. And Jesus didn't just stop at taking the burden off of him. He put clothes on his back and gave him peace. This man is sitting at peace. This man is resting in the finished works that Jesus Christ had done in his life. So when you see him, you see him fully restored. So we have to understand, and what we take away from that is, is that Jesus often will describe himself as the shepherd. Okay? He is the shepherd for his people, which means he takes care of his sheep, which means he takes his sheep and he takes care of them. When they go out and they break their leg, he binds them up. When they go out and they get lost, he brings them in. When they go, That is the picture we get here. And when this sheep of his was in the condition it was, Jesus took him, bound him, provided him, cleaned him, took care of him. He helped his child. And it was a whole package deal. So that should be something that should really give us some great comfort, some great peace, some great hope. And should also be able to look at Jesus as that Savior, as that Shepherd. To understand that Jesus does not halfway do it. Jesus does not say, I'll get you half the way you pick your rest of yourself up. Okay? Maybe I'll get you over the initial addiction, but you've got to figure out how you've got to stay clean because that's all on you. I'll get you through this storm, but once it's over, you've got to figure out how to get back to shore. Well, Jesus is along the whole way. And in the end there, and this is really, I mean, this is kind of the anti-evangelism that you want, okay? So you go off and you tell the city all that's happened, and they come back and they go, we don't want anything to do with this. This is scary. I don't want you around here. You creep me out. This kind of ties in what's said in John chapter 1 where it says that in him was life and the life was the light of men and the light shineth into darkness and the darkness comprehended it not. And also says that men ran away from the darkness as he says in John 3.16 that men ran away from the light because they loved darkness more than light. So when light has come on this scene and completely changed this man's life, they don't want anything to do with that. That is outside of what they want to be around. This is scary. And really, they're more worried about the 2,000 pigs than they are about this man. So that gives you a good picture into their heart. So what's amazing, though, if you think about this man and think about what has happened here, this man's life is changed. It's not just that he's free from the legion of demons within him. He's changed. He has life now. He has the ability now to do things. He could re-enter society. He may have to find somewhere else to re-enter society yet. People are probably still going to be a little bit, uh, you know, a little bit skittish about this dude, okay? But he has been changed. He's going to be a new man. 
He's already making a mark on people who see him. People who see him are able to look at him and go, was that Bill? You talking about Bill? That's a, and I'm sorry, no, I don't think there's anybody in here named Bill, but that's good. So is that Bill? All right. Is that Joe? Maybe I should use something. Is that like Joe Bob or something like that? Is that Bill? Are you telling me that's Bill? You, the one that used to be out there screaming and cutting and all that stuff and did all that stuff? You know, that's him. Now, unfortunately, in these people's situation, they're like, well, we don't know. We're going to back away from that. I'm not going to touch him with a 10-foot pole. Don't know what's going on with him. What is the point that we take from this is that hopefully as experiencers, if I can make that word, as experiencers or ones who have experienced grace, okay, who have seen grace work in our lives, who could have a testimony of how God has worked in our lives, hopefully it is not our gut reaction to see someone else who has been touched by the grace of God and delivered out of immense depression, illness, addiction, whatever it may be, and have kind of a drawback moment. And I think probably we could think about it and we could honestly say that a lot of times that's what we do. We know how it affected us. We know where we're at. But when we see people, especially who we've grown up with, known, maybe known how they were in high school, knew how they were in college, knew how they had just been in rehab and been into addiction issues or whatever it may be. When they come around and all of a sudden they're coming to church and they're looking good and they're talking about Jesus and everything, the initial reaction a lot of times with a lot of Christians is, yeah, let's see how long this lasts. Let's see how long this lasts. Oh, yeah, sure. We remember. They did this before, you know. They come around for a few weeks and then cut loose, and there they are again. They're addicted to drugs, and I give them to, you know, I get to say, see, I told you so. They really didn't, you know. They were just playing around. They were just faking it. They weren't all cleaned up looking like a nice little Christian like me on Sunday. The initial reaction a lot of times is to have this view of these people who've been affected by grace and we look at them with ungracious eyes. We look at them and go, yeah, I'll watch them and just see. I'm sure they'll fall down again. I'm sure they'll go right back to it. I'm sure they're just faking it. They're just putting it on. They're just trying to do this to get a little attention or get a little help. And then once they get it, they're going to cut and run. And look, I get it because... As Christians, we want to be loving, compassionate people, and we want to give where people need help. And then sometimes we look and we see situations where people we give to turn right around, and they turn and end up using that to do something else, or they fall right back into whatever it is that they were doing. And we heard, I mean, (laughs) we were listening to people yesterday as we were trying to um, uh, raise money for Sweetwater Outreach, and we were talking about helping. There were some people who... (laughs) Uh, you know, one guy came up to us and was like, oh, what do y'all do? I was like, well, you know, we're trying to do water purification and things, medical missions in Africa. Well, you need to be working on saving the so- stick, sick and starving here in America. And then just walked right off, okay? Anyway, so we moved on from that one. Um, and then we had one that was talking about like, yeah, you know, I really want to give, but then I'm just always worried about getting burned, you know? What about that one that you give to? And then they turn right around and they go back to the liquor store, the corner spot, they pick back up their drugs, and there you go, you gave your money, and what do they use it for? You just gave them the drugs, and all you are is an enabler. What I want us to do is make sure that we kind of step away from that attitude, and we get back to the attitude that Jesus has about these people. The desire is to love, heal, and help them. 
The desire is to see them saved from the issue they're dealing with, get out from the bondage, delivered from the slavery. That's what we should desire. So instead, what kind of amazing and crazy thing would it be that instead of the one who comes in that you go, yeah, I mean, yeah, they just, they just got clean. I'm just expecting them at any moment to trip and fall. What if instead we're like, no, I'm not going to let you trip and fall. I'm going to be praying for you that God would continue to keep that saving power over you to deliver you from any other demons that might come your way. I'm here for you. You're back in society. You're back out. You know, quit trying to live out there among the tombs. You come live with me. I, I don't mind you being here. I want you here because I know that here is where Jesus Christ is preached and Jesus is Savior. I want you as close to the Savior as you can possibly be. I want to be that light and I want to make sure that I stay as close to you as possible because I want to shine the light of Jesus Christ on you day in and day out so that no darkness can ever come around you again. I want to bring you in and keep you as close as possible because I know that if you can just stay looking with your eyes on Jesus, you're never going to sink in that storm because that's my testimony. That's the issue that I think comes with this is that we talk about the grace and we're all about grace and it's grace and it's grace. But then so many times we see people and we don't act graciously. We don't embody that grace. We, start, we kind of fall back to a works thing. We fall back to, well, when you clean yourself up and you stay clean for long enough, six months, and you stay and you start becoming a more productive member of whatever society I'm a part of, then I will gladly join with you and we can lock hand in hand and go get some coffee. But it's the people at the front end. They're the ones that need it the most. They're the ones that need to know, hey, you see me? Well, it was me the same way, by grace. It was God's grace that saved me this way. So I want you to stay here and keep your eyes on me and looking at me going, hey, if God can save them, they can surely save me. If God can, can sustain him, he can surely sustain me. So we have to make sure that our gut reaction is one of grace and love, and that we should crave and desire success and not just sit back and expect failure. And like we were talking about last week when we were talking about the gospel and evangelism, you know, we are part of a great war. This is life and death stuff. When we're talking about the gospel, we're not talking about some kind of feel-goodism. We're talking about life and death stuff. So what we should desire is life. You know, we claim as Christians to be pro-life. Well, part of that is being pro-life in every aspect. Not just being pro-life about abortion, but be pro-life about people who are in need, whether that's refugees or whatever maybe. Pro-life about people who are struggling with addictions. I want to see you out of darkness into light. I want to see you away from death into life. I want to see you saved from this issue. And there's only one place, and it's in the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's it. So we are part of that. People want to kind of, the, the issue with a lot of teenage people, an issue like that in high school, and as they're going through all these things, and they're having these issues with cliques and all that, is because they're trying to find that great story that they can be a part of. Okay? I just want to feel included. I want to feel like I'm in with the right crowd. I want to feel like I'm being, having myself, whatever, um, affirmed, okay, that I have a place, 
that my gifts or whatever are necessary to this people group, okay? So whether that's, you know, you want to go gothic and you got the blackest hair and the blackest lipstick so that you can be the best goth you could possibly be, or whether that's you're the biggest jock and you want to be the best jock of all jocks and everything and you're the most sportsy kind of person. I know you look at me and that's what you, yes, that was my problem. I wanted to be the best. Um, when you look at people who are the, the people on the educational educational side, the smart people, okay, they want to be the best at it with the 4.5 GPA and they got all this credentials behind their names and stuff. Whatever it is, we're trying to find that spot in the story where we can go look at how affirmed I am and how useful I can be. Well, what I want to encourage us as believers in Jesus Christ is he gifted you, he saved you, he bought you for a purpose and that was that whether you live you live to christ whether you die you die for christ but in whether you live or whether you die it is for christ that is something that in this little catechism book we've been doing with the kids that's i think samuel's favorite one what is our only hope in life and death and that is we are bought with a price therefore we are not our own and that our bodies are used for christ whether we live or die we live or die for christ so as we take that going forward, you're part, we are part of this bigger picture, this bigger war that is going on. And we have the battle between light and darkness and good and evil, and we are on the battlefront. And so your part in this story is that you at any age are an ambassador for Jesus Christ. They can walk up and say, I got the answer to your problem. I got the answer to you, your issue. I've got the savior for your slavery. I've got the deliverer for your bondage. And it's Jesus Christ. And your gifts that God gave you are necessary and are essential in the kingdom. And your gifts that God gave you are different than mine. And that's why we need you. Okay? If you, I've, been, I've been building shutters and things at the house. And I kind of joke. I'm like, look, if you need me as a gifted carpenter, you've got to find somebody else. Okay? Get on Angie's list because it ain't going to be me. Okay? Um, I can do little, slight, but I mean, especially if something needs to be measured, just do not... Do not bring me a ruler or a tape measure because somehow even though I measure 10 inches, it's, not, it's going to be cut like 8.5 or 15. I don't know how, but it just is. Um, so if you're talking about your gifts, people are God gifted you specifically. He gave you a set of gifts. He born you again, saved you, bought you for a purpose. So you do have a purpose. And your affirmation of your self-worth is not bound up in your hair color, your lipstick style, or what kind of boots you're wearing. It is bound up in your ability to serve Christ in the kingdom here today. Amen. Amen. So let us do that. And let us realize that is our purpose. We're going to finish that out this afternoon. We're going to talk about the next step with the, uh, the closing lines there with, um, with this man that Jesus healed. So everybody stick around for that. May God bless us to think on these things.